Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Editor Rusty Reno is with us again to talk about a subject in this month's Public Square. Uh, First question, Rusty, when did you first encounter Carl Barth? Yes, Carl Barth. You know, my my charming wife uh, wrote a. She took a class and she turned in a paper where his, Carl Barth's name was misspelled every time, and <laughs> Carl Bor Borth. <laughs> and yes, yeah, Carl Barth. Um, uh, not Carl Barth. Uh, you know, the Germans they 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 don't they don't, they don't go with the th diphthong. Uh, they just come across as a straight, straight on hard T. Um, I was, I, re- I was in a class at Haverford College, and I, gosh, I think it was a class on 19th century religious thought. Of course, you couldn't say theology at the Haverford Liberal Arts College, but it was really basically a class on 19th century Protestant theology from Kant's religion within the limits of reason alone through Schleiermacher, Kierkegaard. I think we read Ernst Trelch, The Absoluteness of Christianity. I was probably the only college student, the only college class in America, undergraduate class, that read that book by Ernst Trelch. And it ended with Karl Barth, even though his Letter to the Romans commentary was published in 1919. It, it, it it's, the course was the great liberal Protestant project, with its uh, its its answer in the person of Karl Barth. What did the how, how did the teacher present Barth? I mean, what, what did Barth stand? I mean, obviously he came to stand out to you. Uh, what did he seem to represent in that lineage? It was my teacher um, Ron Thiemann who had done his PhD at Yale in the 70s, mid-70s, and had written his dissertation, I think, on Karl Barth and Werner Ehlert. Um, Barth was not a... Ron was a Missouri Synod Lutheran, and he was defending Ehlert's law gospel understanding against Barth's criticism of the Lutheran law gospel distinction. But be that as it may, by the time I had him as a teacher in... I think I took that class in 1981 spring of 1981. Bart was the great heroic figure of 20th century theology for Thiemann, who had provided a definitive critique of liberal Protestant theology and had recovered a mode of theological 
reflection and uh, language that restored the authority of God, to put it quite bluntly, as the foundation of theology. You raise the meaning in your, in your public square of the term liberal. What does liberal signify in, in the context of this tradition and, and in Barth's work? Barth's work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, you have Kant, What is Enlightenment, his essay, What is Enlightenment? And it's, uh, Enlightenment is daring to think on one's own. And so instead of, so liberal theology is liberal in the sense that it, it, it allows for the independence of Geisteswissenschaft, the human sciences, and what they have to say about morality and history and, for that matter, religion. And then theology has to account for the, the authority of the human sciences and somehow mediate between that and the apostolic tradition. And, and so that you're, you're, you're liberal in the sense that you give freedom to the non-theological disciplines to have a say in what the church should teach. And then you as the theologian synthesize it and, and recover it and integrate those non-theological voices into, into a, a larger theological synthesis. And, and so, you know, and there are different ways to do that. Some emphasize the moral dimension, others emphasize the historical dimension. So you could sort of say Kant, he rejects Christianity's supernatural claims, but affirms Christianity's moral claims. And then you get someone like Hegel, who in a very complicated way, affirms Christianity's supernatural claims as a stage in the historical development of the human spirit. <laughs> so are they really supernatural, uh, or are they a, a mode or a phase in the evolution of consciousness um, through history? I think it's the latter. And so there are subtle ways that you can then, typically the Hegelian approach is in the more common parallels of, of theology and in the 19th to 20th century is to use the meaning language. So to say that Christ rose from the dead is meaningful to people. It gives them a sense of that there is something more to life than material existence and things like that. That's the Hegelian mode of mediation. Uh, but if in the more commonplace for the Kantian or neo-Kantian one, is to say that, you know, love of neighbor, um, that Christ was a great moral teacher. And so was he the son of God? Well, let's just not talk about that. Instead, let's focus on Christ's great moral teachings. So those are the two directions that you go um, in liberal theology. Uh, and, and Bart, you know, stood against both of those tendencies. Well, at the time, did you find that liberal tendency... Um, Threatening, or maybe that's too strong a word, but oh, I, no, I was very much a, threatened by I was very your much own faith. in it. I mean, I was raised in a liberal Protestant environment, so that was a natural way for me to think about these things. You know, I was reading Paul Tillich. I, I remember reading Carl Jung as a high school student, and because you know, Jung was of all the sort of post-Freudian. He was a student of Freud's, 
who he was the one that sort of gave the most credence to the supernatural. But strictly speaking, in a scholastic sense, it would be the preternatural, the, the sort of the odd outside of the realm of the normal, the paranormal, as as we would use that term today. So Jung gave the most scope to that. You know, he had this whole theory of archetypes. He's fascinated by Gnosticism. He bought one of the Nagamati Gnostic texts, actually, which were, you know, discovered right after World War II. So that was a sort of collective unconscious. Reverend, you know, Paul Tillich's The Dynamics of Faith. Um, so I was very much in the meaning or um, meaning mongering, as I call it now, and the moral teaching side. I mean, that was also emphasized in my childhood. Within this context, what was, quote, the problem of revelation? There are two sides. When for Kant, you know, there's no, our concepts or our thinking can never capture or it can never capture or express the noumenal, you know, so or to put it in more straightforward terms that, you know, we don't have the capacity to have any reliable metaphysical knowledge. And so you, you have to think about the conditions for the possibility of knowing rather than actually the actual knowing. So that's the epistemological side of the problem of revelation. And then there's the, there's the authoritative side, you know, the, the question of authority, you know, on what basis do we accept revelation as true? Um, you know, how can we, how can we be confident that the gospel accounts of Jesus are accurate? Um, and here, historical study of the modern historical study of the Bible uh, raised a, a whole raft of problems already starting in the 18th century with the Old Testament and then moving um, to the New Testament in the 19th century. And this created a series of crises of faith in in European context and the United States also, although U.S. was uh, often got these sorts of scholarly developments a generation late. Um, but you had a kind of crisis of confidence in the accuracy of Scripture. You had um, a kind of crisis, a kind of metaphysical crisis. Lessing famously said that accidents of history can never be the uh, prove the you know the, the truths of eternity. And obviously, Jesus of Nazareth was an historical person, so how can a historical person be a revelation of the infinite, you know, super, supra-temporal God? So all these, so there's a kind of metaphysical side to it, and there's an epistemological side to it. And how does Barth, Bart, <laughs> I keep thinking John Barth, I teach John Barth, so uh, how does Barth treat that how does he handle the problem of revelation? He effectively argues that the very concept of God solves the problem of the metaphysical distance between the infinite and the finite. That is to say, if God is all-powerful, then presumably the difference between the infinite and finite is not a barrier to him revealing himself through the finite. Um, and Which strikes me as, I mean, I'm, it, it's kind of a tautological claim. Um, you know, it comes back and there's a great midrash on Moses's God's commandment to Moses uh, on, on the building the tabernacle, the commandments on building the tabernacle. Moses objects, saying to God, you know, you know, four cubits by four cubits. I mean, uh, you, great and almighty, you could never fit into such a small space. 
And uh, effectively, the Midrash has God responding, shut up, Moses. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. I'm the all-powerful God. I can decide what I can and can't do. And so I think that this is that, that I think that for Bart, it was it was taken as uh, uh, tautological that if God is God, then uh, then there's no there's no barrier that would prevent God from you know revealing Himself in His fullness to us as human beings. And, and you were convinced that you were persuaded. That didn't really work that way. I mean, that's 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 not really an argument. Well, I was more um, um, sort of blown away, to use that uh, youthful expression, by reading a theologian that was just so unrepentantly talking about um, God, what God has done, and what, what the Bible says. And so it was, a, it was a, just an un, unqualified engagement with the apostolic tradition that forced the reader, and that's, I think, one of the explosive effects of his commentary, which, as I said, was published in 1919 and made a big impact and then revised substantially. And the one that we read as undergrads was the, 20, the 1922 version. But it's just, it forces you as the reader, like, there's no escape hatch. Either, either what he's talking about is, in fact, a truth claim that I have to either accept or reject. And it's, I can't manage it or massage it with meaning talk, nor can I translate it into some kind of moralistic posture. Yeah. But, but you know, when, when you say that here, here was a theologian, he, he was unrepentant. He was just saying, you're 20 years old. You want to hear some conviction. You want strength. And you, you find that uh, Barth believed, as you say, that liberalism in theology has no backbone. You wanted theology with some backbone? Is that a big part of this, or no? I'm not sure I was looking for it so much as it found me. But what, what, with, with him, you felt like you were actually getting what both the liturgy says and what the Bible says. So you go to church, and you sit through your church service, and it's not like the words of the liturgy are kind of hermeneutically massaged or in some way there's no prolegomena you just plunge right in you say the lord's prayer you know you you uh you know petition god in the name of the father son the holy spirit all these things that happen at church or the bible itself and just with bart you you got somebody talking about the uh the thing um rather than talking about talking about talking about the thing and so that was just, uh, I felt like well, I was actually here now reading something, uh, reading somebody who, you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, but it, 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 this is the real deal. And it was the real deal about something that claims to be of infinite importance. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. 
you, you say that he made the Bible more, quote, immediate uh, to you. You call Barth's book on Romans, quote, the beginning of post-liberal theology. How, how was it that? He didn't. It's post-liberal in the sense that one need not worry about the metaphysical or the epistemological problems. You just plunge in, and you know, uh, you 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 either say intelligent, persuasive things that make sense out of the apostolic tradition, or you don't. I mean, liberal theology was always prolegomenal. That is to say, it was always a kind of assuring the reader that one could talk meaningfully about God or assure the reader that one could be intellectually responsible and be a Christian believer. And I mean, there's a place for that in apologetics, but, you know, uh, it was at the center of liberal theology. And Bart just swept that away and just, like I say, just plunged right in and talked about the problems of sin <laughs> uh, uh, and and uh, the nature of redemption in Christ. You you say that he he helped you become anti-modern, and so I was I was wondering where does Bart stand today in schools and departments of theology, many of which I, from what I've seen, want to be modern. Right. Well. For me, I've thought a lot about well, what, what makes modernity modern. I mean, there are many factors, obviously. And I gave the example of Kant, you know, think for yourself, don't don't accept truth on authority. But then, of course, we look around and we see that people accept, I mean, I mean everybody accept. I mean, the science is taught to young people by on the basis of authority. Um, you know, uh, you 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 get the dogmas of science or the doctrines of science and so on and so forth. So I can't quite be right, um, but I've come to see uh, modernity. Uh, one of its signal features is to believe that somehow life for us is different than it was has been from time immemorial. That's this is a new moment, and again, you know, Hegel turns out to be just such a deep thinker because his philosophy of history. It specifically makes the claim that we've now reached a certain point. We've reached the end of history. We've reached its fulfillment. And so, therefore, we can never be naive the way that uh, pre-modern people are, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because Bart, Bart's basic theological claim is that, you know, 2,000 years ago with the Incarnation, a possibility opened up for the human person that did not exist before and that we are in the same position with respect to that possibility that St. Paul was. Um, so that there's nothing, there is 2,000 years that separates us from the apostolic generation, but there's no spiritual distance between us. Um, our problems are their problems. Their problems are our problems. The deepest problems, you know, the problem of sin, guilt, problem of death, infinitude, uh, suffering, um, these these problems are are in no sense, in no way different from the problems that face the apostolic generation, and that was that's a liberation, you know. It is, it is. Because then you can sort of say, yes, it's different. Of course, look, the Middle Ages. We don't live in the Middle Ages, you know. Here we are. We're talking 
using technology. Your listeners are listening on the podcast on their phones. You know, we're not fighting with swords, etc. Um, we have modern dentistry, blah, blah, blah. So we don't want to pretend that like everything's the same. It's just that it just gives you the freedom to say, well, some things are different and other things aren't. Um, some things are possible for us. Uh, some things are not possible, you know? And so, it, you, so stop, it, it allowed me to stop periodizing. And, you know, I remember I was at this, um, uh, it was a, it was a seminar or academic conference on biblical interpretation. And, and one of my colleagues gave a, a paper using rabbinic Jewish sources. You know, she was a rabbinic scholar. And one of the seminar participants said, well, that's all fine and good, but you can't turn back the clock. And I thought, well, if you can't, then we don't need to worry about it, do we? I mean, if you can't turn <laughs> back the clock, then let's just make the arguments and see where we land. Yeah. And if, if I'm using St. Thomas's commentaries, or if I'm using St. Augustine's commentaries, and if I don't draw on historical criticism, modern historical criticism, and it seems to me that the proof is in the pudding. Is something important and interesting? Has it been said? Something that seems true, that garners our assent? As opposed to policing all the time, uh, whether or not it's sufficiently modern, or whether it's historically conscious, or whether it, whether it uh, respects the a modern value of autonomy. I mean, all these sorts of things. I mean, I want to. I don't reject any of those things, but I just the conceit of modernity is somehow these are all important and trump everything. Yeah, and and you know one of the uh, one of the things that modernity most polices is the assumption of getting out of that historical relativism. Of making a claim beyond your your I mean certain claims I should say beyond beyond your you know who are you who are we to judge who are you to decide who's to say uh, I think that follows that 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 kind of dithering follows from the from that Hegelian liberal perspective on the historicization even of consciousness. Yeah, Hegel's a funny character. He you know. He's a bit of a Rorschach test. You see in him what you want to see because it's it's such a rich and enigmatic. It's a kind of knowingness. The phenomenology of spirit it it provides a kind of knowingness, uh, which is not unlike what Socrates, you know, what Plato envisions in a kind of dialectic of a of Socrates gets you somewhere, and where it gets you is a kind of deeper, richer vision of the way things really are. Um, so I think there's a platonic reading of Hegel as well as a historicist reading of Hegel. But let me, let's set that aside. Um, and to your point, it's just one of the, I mean, um, C.S. Lewis was, helped me here, is that it's a paradox that we live in an age that claims to be historically conscious, uniquely historically conscious, but that it suffers terribly from presentism you know, only seeing things, you know, like, uh, and, and so, so, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I used to teach, uh, uh, Spencer's fairy queen in a class on moral theology. And so I read around a lot in, uh, Lewis's, 
um, literary scholarship because that was one of his specialties: Renaissance literature, late mo- late medieval Renaissance, early modern literature. And uh, he was a firm believer, right? I mean, proper historical study is a kind of to try to get inside the head of an earlier times way of thinking, and which strikes me as an noble enterprise, actually. <laughs> and so, but if you do that, you might, and I think Lewis recognized that, there's an enlargement of mind because their way of thinking actually might be richer than ours, at least in this respect, in some respects. And so Spencer, for instance, as a moral psychologist, his sense of the, with the subtle dynamics of the soul far, far exceeds in insight and depth anything you can get from modern psychology. And so I would, if someone was getting a degree in counseling or something like that, I would strongly recommend a kind of close reading and study of Spencer's Fairy Queen. Not that, not that you would have to accept everything that Spencer says, but it's a profound enrichment of our understanding of the, <laughs> the ways in which we can deceive ourselves and uh, uh, create these um, labyrinths of uh, self-justification for what we want to believe and do. Spencer's sonnets, the Amoretti, they're better than Shakespeare's. I don't think I've read them. <laughs> they're Shame great. On me. They're great. Well, they're 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 a you know they're a narrow taste. But all right, you actually think that that Bart, you actually say you were blessed in the public square for having been delivered from the 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 binding cords of quote questions of meaning. That that was actually it, it, it is it was it was liberating for you, yeah. Well, then you begin to think. I mean, obviously, spiritually, that's the key question. You know, um, I mean, we just Easter was last weekend, and uh, he has risen. I mean, do you believe that? Because if you do, then well, now, Rusty, wait a minute. What what do you mean by risen? <laughs> Yeah, as in triumphed over sin and death. <laughs> it just never stops. Well, now, wait a minute. What, what, what do you mean by sin? And you know, it 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 just, you know, there's an infinite regress. As as uh... well, I mean, but you know, Bart didn't think that these things were self-evident. Uh, sin and death. I mean, certainly, sin. One of the one of his great achievements is the Church Dogmatics, this vast, uh, multi-volume, sixteen, eighteen, uncompleted. Uh, book of systematic theology, or maybe you shouldn't say systematic theology, it's called dogmatic theology, because it's not overly systematized. But, you know, in his discussion of sin, he recognizes that, like, what is, I mean, sin ultimately, you could say that it's a violation of first commandment. That's the kind of primordial sin of the Old Testament, idolatry, worshiping that which is not God. And uh, so we really only see sin clearly in the mirror of divine righteousness and glory and holiness. And so his account of sin is you know, very kind of profoundly presented as a, as a reflection you know, that Christ reveals to us the true nature of sin. So the, 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 the sinless uh, Son of God allows us to see more truly. We all have a sense of sin, but I mean, to see it in its clear outlines, um, really requires the revelation of Christ. So he he are very artfully and beautifully portrays different aspects of sin um, in comparison to the uh, person and work work of Christ. 
Uh, it, last question, Rusty, and I don't want you to go too far into this because we want it to be for people to see this fully in the public square, but any quick uh, anticipation you'd like to give on what Barth's failure was, personal failure? Well, he had this menage a trois with this research assistant that he fell in love with, and um, so he obviously failed morally in a fundamental way in terms of his marital vows and his duties to his wife and children, um, and which was caused great pain to his wife. Um, and and there's a I was writing in response or out of some stimulation of my mind reading a, re, a biography that just came out last month of Karl Barth uh, by um, uh, what's her name Tietzel, um, a Swiss um, theologian, and she details that. And so I don't readers you know, listeners don't need me to detail that, but it's also um, the kind of heroic theologian. Um, which is a very Protestant type. I became more and more suspicious of that the older I got, as theology is a substitute for church. Um, there's there's a temptation to think that we can create a kind of for, mighty fortress of theological elan and forcefulness. I mean, Bart said about Schleiermacher that he talked about God by talking about man in a loud voice. And there's a bit of part where he talked about God by talking about theology in a loud voice. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. And, so, and maybe that reflects the, you know, his failures in his personal life that, uh, that theology, I mean, his theology is bold. It's courageous in, in, in the face of this kind of modern pressure to um, justify everything according to the bar of secular reason um, so it is. He has those really enviable virtues, but you know, perhaps trusted too much in the power of a kind of intellectual elaboration and appropriation of of the apostolic tradition, as opposed to inhabiting it and dwelling in it, um, both in terms of the moral life and sacramental life. Listeners can read more in this month's Public Square. Editor in Chief Reno, thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.